This will be our last Techie Talk of August 2023 with State Representative Techie Chan of Quincy. Hard to believe, Techie. Well, the unofficial end of summer is creeping on us fast. And I'd like to wish everybody a happy Labor Day weekend and uh, all my friends in the labor unions uh, to have a wonderful Labor Day as well. And of course, you all know I'm a SAG AFRA member and um, you know, we continue to uh, be on strike. And I you know, hope that uh, you know, the negotiations are continuing well in California, but same time, we're very thankful of our brothers and sisters in labor are supporting our cause. Yeah, we actually, since you brought that up, is it having an impact? I know the film industry is pretty big in Massachusetts. It is actually having an impact. I don't think it'd be felt for a little while, but it's going to be more felt as we go into the winter months. Uh, a lot of uh, television and filming actually pauses deep winter areas, unless you need to do a winter scene. You know, most people don't will, will slow down or not do as many uh, outdoor scenes during the winter period. Uh, but, you know, as I said during the pandemic, you know, we didn't realize exactly how much impact the film industry had until we had no tourists. And uh, graduation season wasn't normal because people didn't come up for in-person graduation. And the hotel industry and hospitality was basically held up by the film industry, which was the fastest one uh, to get back online once the various states uh, lifted their COVID restrictions on businesses. Um, and, you know, the month they had money already banked uh, for these films. So it isn't like, you know, they had a financing problem. It's just they need to get to work quickly. So, you know, for those who may remember during, you know, COVID, you know, I had made up uh, part of my floor speech and also with you, Joe, and various podcasts, you know, how, you know, the uh, industry had reduced the, I'm sorry, the hotel hospitality industry had well below 30% census and continually dropping and, you know, near zero during COVID. Uh, but, you know, because of the film industry already being here and kind of trapped with the rest of us, so to speak, indoors, you know, they were trapped in hotel rooms and continuing to pay. And, you know, they basically made up the, all of the, basically almost all of the hotel stays uh, during the second half of 2020 in particular, uh, you know, which kept their census up 30% and, and higher in, in many hotels. And like, for example, Spencer for Hire's last, not Spencer for Hire, uh, Dexter, Dexter's last season. I'm now dating myself by saying Spencer, but Dexter's last season or most recent season was filmed in the Berkshires. And, um, you know, there were a huge economic impact, you know, for their presence there in, in the towns they were in. So, yeah, we're going to feel it. Um you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in economic impact as a result of the writers and uh, actors strike. Um, and uh, California is obviously going to take the biggest brunt of it all, as well as places like New York State and Georgia, uh, other states that are huge film television states. So, you know, this impacts a lot because when you say writer strike, people forget those includes writers for late night shows. And, and game shows, too, you know, things you don't even think of. Yes, you know, any even though they're perceived as live live uh, shows, they're re really scripted live shows. So you're right, game shows, late night shows, Saturday Night Live is probably one of the most well known ones regarding uh, a scripted live show. Um, so yeah, it's his massive impact on our fall entertainment and the streaming services are right now, you know, rapidly pushing out all their prior. Uh, stuff that's already been filmed as quickly as possible. And also certain movies are going to have suspension on Dune 2, for those who are Dune fans, you know, was supposed to come out this November. They're going to suspend it into the spring because they can't do a tour. The actors will not do a promotion or the writers do promotion on a movie while they're on strike. And that has a huge impact on uh, ticket sales. 
being able to promote a film because you want to create that buzz for people to come watch it. And then you also have the negative impact on theaters, which is still having a hard time, not just because of the COVID impact or streaming services, but also the lack of content. People forget that if you don't have stuff in a theater to watch, why would you want to watch it? And, you know, I was joking about how many times you could watch Gone in the Wind during the COVID period in 2020, but it, it's actually true. I mean, there's only two uh, films that crossed a billion dollars this year, uh, and it's uh, Mario Brothers and uh, Barbie. Uh, interesting enough, two uh, a toy license or video game license franchise um, actually crossed, cr- crossed a billion dollar mark. Mission Impossible did very poorly. Much to my shock, by the way. I think Tom Cruise is a seller, but apparently the Top Gun Maverick was the last big hurrah for now. Um, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny did not do well. Another big budget film, uh, in this case by Disney. Um, you know, So a lot of these blockbuster films have not done great. I mean, Michael Bay's Transformers, again, not a huge turnout this year for that film. Another one that uh, people like the summer kind of like escapism films. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, The Flash did okay. Another superhero movie, again, escapism film. Uh, but Oppenheimer is doing pretty good, actually, for a film that's three hours and, what, 20-plus minutes and uh, quite heavy at one point. And I, it's on my watch list, but it's three hours and 20 minutes. But that, that that's a problem for movie theaters because you can only have so many showings of that film a day, uh, as opposed to a two-hour uh, and a half film or even a you know, one uh, one hour and 30 minute film, you can run more screens and run more showings per day. So a film that's popular, like Oppenheimer is actually tough with theaters as well because they can't show it as often. Right, yeah. Are you hearing anything at all about movement in the contract talks? No, I got my latest emails. They still have some exemptions for uh, independent films. One of the other areas that is heavily impacted by the strike is small indie films. We're talking about films that are less than the quarter million dollars, half million dollars. We're talking tiny films. Some as small as under $100,000. But they use union actors in some of these movies. And these actors will take below uh, pay a bit because they like the project so much. Uh, but you have to get a waiver for you know for things like that, and you have to get a special contractual waiver with the union to can use continue to use actors. And why is this important? Because the film festival seasons can be starting up soon internationally, and uh, if your independent film isn't done and, and it qualifies for an independent film festival, that's a launch point uh, for some of these films to to make a couple of dollars back. Uh, and if they get really lucky, they go into picked up uh, they go into the mainstream theaters if they get picked up by a distributor. So uh, independent films are kind of on a precipice right now um, nationally uh, because the deadlines are coming up on, on the festivals uh, this wintertime. And, uh, you know, guys, you got to make a bit of money back. I mean, that, that's part of it as well. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. And again, that's another thing, promote promotion as well. If you have a complete indie film, you know, you have actors who want to promote their indies. Yeah, that's a good point. The actors, it's, so it's two separate strikes, really. It's the writers and the actors. Yeah, it's been, I think, close to 40 years since both unions were striked together. Um, this is a really big deal because now you really have ground to a halt. Uh, basically, the entire industry, right? You don't have writers and actors. Uh, you got nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, that leaves your reality TV shows. So, you know, somebody may like The Bachelor, or the bachelorette. I mean, you know, those are going to continue, but you know, scripted entertainment or scripted live entertainment is, you know, not on the table. 
Unfortunately, it does not impact local access cable television here in Quincy. <laughs> well, I mean, this is your chance uh, for a breakout moment, Joe. <laughs> yeah, that chance is long past. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, although I prefer I prefer this uh, over that any day. <laughs> well, it's been a long time I've been on a set acting. I will have to say, um, I do miss it. I mean, I'm not I'm not claiming to be an Oscar winning actor. By any stretch of imagination, but I, I, you know, I do like, I do like it. I mean, I miss, you know, doing uh, some acting. If there's a chance to do some modeling, back when I was much younger and more handsome, uh, perhaps I was more handsome. I, I don't know anymore. Uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed meeting people, talking about where they came from in their lives. I know it's a lot of hurry up and wait. Those who've done this before, you just kind of sit there waiting for something to happen. Um, it's a good chance to catch up at work, <laughs> believe it or not. You know, uh, while you're waiting for something to happen. Um, but what best fun was actually just talking to folks where they come from, how they got into this business, you know, what they're involved and what their aspirations will be. And everyone actually has a different story. And, you know, until you actually see it done in person, I mean, it's, most people realize exactly how intricate uh, making movies, TVs, commercials are, and just the raw number of people that you don't see in front of a camera to make it happen. That's exactly right. Yeah, even at, even at our small scale here, you know, uh, local access, uh, there's a lot of behind the scenes, more behind the scenes than in front of the camera in order to make things go. Um, and, you know, for your part, it's a, it's a different outlet. It's a creative outlet, I'm sure, um, as opposed to the legislative uh, uh, name tag that you wear for most of the day. Well, it's a lot of fun. I mean, as you all know, I mean, I'm an attorney, I'm an actor, I'm a politician. So, I mean, the, the triple threat of things people hate. <laughs> uh hey you're in a different uh office today yes i'm in chairman paracella's office today i am uh, next door to my own office this is a uh, uh, thank you to chairman paracella and his staff for allowing me to uh, fill my podcast from here at the state house so he's the chairman of economic development and emerging technologies my office is getting painted getting an office painted here is like finding a unicorn um, those who have visited the state house knows this is a very old building and it's kind of a hodgepodge my corporate has black duct tape holding down parts of it. This ain't Congress, people. I wish it was. Um, you actually, on a quick side note, if you go to the um, Ed, Ed, Edward Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, um, don't, edu what is it? Yeah, Education Institute, I can't remember the name of it, but it's at UMass at, by JFK Center. They yep. have the replica of the U.S. Senate. They also have a replica of Ted Kennedy's office. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's it's incredible, and you know we don't. It's not a mat. It actually, is quite a small office once you see the replica. I was very surprised how uh, little space it had. But uh, you know they have better paint and wallpaper and uh, and definitely better carpet. So my my office being painted pewter. Uh, so who visit me know I have a basement office, a retaining wall behind me. The lighting is challenging. We've done a few podcasts for my other space. Um, and, uh, you know, opportunity came up to get painted. So all my stuff is not in office. It's sitting in the outside space. And my uh, staff has decided that since we have the office repaint, it'd be a good idea to probably do another furniture rearrange. We haven't really uh, done a lot since 2017. And, um, those are, you know, may, may or may not know. I mean, I, I was a midterm chairman. So, you know, I got an office in March, uh, 2017 up in transportation. We were prepared to unpack. Uh, we were unpacking and moving from a from a previous office in room twenty six, and then um, I became a chairman in July, and uh, we had only halfway unpacked. Um, this is a gig where things will happen that you know you only get up to the essentials and worry about the other stuff um, when it gets slower, like decorations and you know putting up 
know, pictures I, I do at the end, but um, we've actually never truly finished unpacking from 2017. <laughs> we just kind of like hodgepodge it along. So I suspect the staff's kind of like, well, we have an opportunity to, to actually make your office look more uh, professional or just change it around to, to make it a little bit different. Oh, okay. Well, we'll look forward to that, uh, seeing that next time you're in your office for uh, for our next podcast. Yeah, room 42. <laughs> uh, it's just like going back to school, you know, they, they wax the floors and uh, clean the chalkboard. So Statehouse is doing the same thing. <laughs> what was actually pretty funny was that during COVID 2020, uh, there was actually spotless. It was the cleanest I've ever seen the Statehouse, to be honest with you, uh, because there was nobody here. So there was no mud, there was no tracking of dirt. Um, the, it was not a lot of dust. Uh, sadly, there's almost no ventilation here, which is one of our big fears regarding uh, airborne uh, diseases. Uh, there's nothing to disperse it. So, you know, I have a bunch of fans in office blowing uh, relatively constantly because not just because the temperature can fluctuate quickly, but also trying to keep particles dispersing. You know, I've been running this um, half and half uh, hybrid staffing here. And uh, I've heard stories of other offices, you know, have 100%. COVID impact and basically close the office. So uh, for better or for worse, folks, uh, I've not had an office closure because we've not had uh, all the staff uh, being infected simultaneously through 21 and 22 and probably in this new wave of whatever COVID wave we're facing now in 23. And um, it, it may sound odd to some folks, but I can't lose five staffers at once. Uh, it, it, and God forbid, they're really, really sick, which actually I won't get people's medical issues, but I mean, some folks were, were kind of down for the count for five days. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was really foggy brain and, and just congestion and coughing and, you know, they're much younger than I am, so they have better endurance. Um, but yeah, you, you, you shut down five people in my situation. That's everybody. And um, we got we got into a period of paralysis, at least when we have this kind of split up staff situation to prevent full infection, you know, at least everyone can back everybody up on different work. And yeah. obviously I'm around too. So, you know, I'm, I'm also the ultimate backup and work as well. It's not like I forgot how to staff. I was staffed a long time. It's not like I don't know how to do it. Yeah, no, yeah, it might slow you down a little bit, but at least you'll be able to still function. Yeah, that was kind of crucial uh, when we were discussing among ourselves about this issue. And, uh, uh, you know, as we head into fall season here, you know, we most of my hearings are done. We did it er, er, in the first half of the year, but I mean, we do still have some more hearings. There'll be a lot more meetings and our research uh, continues that we started in, in uh, the end of July into August and September. Um, so, you know, you, you got to be clear headed going to the Christmas time. We have a, a really a short window of sessions from Labor Day to essentially the third week of, of, uh, of, uh, of November. So basically, I think the third Friday is when we shut down for a winter recess. Uh, the committee still works through the holiday period, but if I want to get uh, stuff moving uh, in terms of trying to get bills out of various other committees, as well as trying to get out of the, the House and, and move it to the Senate, you know, I have this little period of time and I can never emphasize again the importance of good staff and you know people who want to you know, put the hours and times in for frankly not too much money. Right. Yeah. Um, the State Transportation Secretary resigned, Jackie. <laughs> Yeah, I think like not quite six months in the job. Something uh, like that, yeah. Nine months in the job or something like that. Yeah, this it's not unusual to see rotation of administration secretaries and commissioners and undersecretaries. Uh, some people find out, you know, they get there, they don't like the job. Mm. Well, 
don't stick around. They don't like the job, right? Other people uh, move on to better opportunities relatively quickly. They, they already had other uh, irons uh, in the uh, fire, so to speak, and move on. Uh, in this instance, I don't have a story to tell you. I don't know exactly what's going on beyond the media outlets. It seems to be very amicable. Um, transition would be pretty good. But again, this is a very important position for the Commonwealth, particularly you know, with the advent of issues at MBTA, uh, the myriad of road and construction projects soon to get done. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously we had some uh, massive impact of flooding um, up in the western part of the state, which includes flooding on a lot of roads. And, uh, you know, the way the weather's been going, there may be more of that, too. So there needs to be somebody at the helm to oversee that. Mm, yeah, that's absolutely correct. And that's kind of part of the you know, challenge here to sec that uh, the secretary it is dealing with, but, you know, also the governor as well. And you need your secretaries in place, you know, through this part of the beginning cycle or to get your agenda down and set up a timeline uh, of you know, how things will get done. So, again, not unusual, a uh, little quicker than I expected. Um, mm. But, you know, generally you get three as of a secretariat. That's pretty good. Um these folks aren't here for a pension. A lot mm -hmm. of folks have private sector jobs. Um, they're very marketable after being a secretariat up here um, in the private sector or whatever they pursue. Yeah. A little surprising, uh, not lasting a full year. Um, but I'm sure that the governor is able to to uh, figure out you know, what's the next best step. Yeah, the undersecretary is now in the acting uh, role. And uh, yeah, like you say, she'll, the governor will uh, address that when needed. Speaking of... Um, Transportation, not not in your district, I know, but uh, here in Quincy, there was a virtual public hearing just last night by the State Department of Transportation, the intersection of Willard Street, Rashudi Drive. Uh, it's at the 25% design phase now. So I was just curious about if you know anything about the funding for that. Well, I was on the call, so okay. I didn't raise my hand. I didn't have a question, but you know, Senator Keenan was there, Representative Ayers, Councilor uh, Jim Devine was on the call, Councilor Mahoney. Um, so, I mean, those are the person I did hear on the call. I, I did have it uh, on my phone on last night. Uh, it's about a man to $5. Okay. It is uh, largely 80% funded by the federal government as considered an emergency highway assistance safety issue. 20%, uh, you know, the state has to come out of that money. Uh, the city did come up with a planning, um, what do you call it, the design and engineering components for a quarter million dollars based on mitigation money. Yep. So, uh, you know, this is actually pretty far ahead. Um, the last yep. time we looked at this location was 2019. At the time, it hadn't quite risen to the level of a traffic danger, which I think everybody's like surprised by if you've ever driven down there. Uh, they did another study again a couple of years later that showed that, you know, it did rise to the level of a danger situation, which, you know, allowed to uh, access federal funds. 25% is very early design phase. There's no clear timetable or construction. Um, it is going to be a traffic light situation. A rotary is not going to work. Obviously, the current configuration is not safe at all. Um, you know, uh, you know, Bruce Ayers and John Keenan and myself, you know, and, and the speaker were able to get about forty thousand uh, dollars for what we call a temporary uh, traffic light. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, so it's kind of a mobile situation we use during oh. the day. Okay. But again, that requires a study before you, you implement that kind of project. You can't just dump it there. So, you know, this involves a city traffic engineer, you know, working with the state on, on trying to figure out what the safety pattern is, what the lay sequence is. This could be a good way to get a test case going, I think, before actual 
construction as well, where you have a temporary lighting system, gives you a chance to kind of get a better like real world fear, real world view and real world uh, attempt to see how the lighting system and what signalizations make sense. But again, they can't just drop it there. They need to actually do a study and figure out you know, what will work or hope will work and then see what happens and make adjustments. But Rashudi and Willard, you know, coming off the expressway, you know, coming off of Willard, going off of Rashudi is a nightmare. And I think everybody who's ever been in that part of the city knows it. So it's great to hear that you know, city and state are working on this project um, and, you know, great work by the delegation on getting some funding on a temporary situation, which um, can provide some good information for a permit solution. Yeah, yeah, you, you don't know unless you try. Um, it's but you know that's interesting. That as you know, that off ramp was built solely for the big dig, just to just to transport the dirt up to the dump. Yeah, so a little bit of ancient history. Uh, the you know, Granite Links Golf Course is built on big dig money. So the O'Connells and you know the guys know that uh, Walter Hannon Senior you know was very involved in that project, and uh, they would uh, basically be paid per truckload of material from the big dig that'd be dumped into Quarry Hills. And then that was money was used to help finance the Quarry Hills golf course project and, you know, pay for Rushudi Drive. Uh, the intention was never really to convert that into a permanent off-ramp until people really started using it and realized that people liked it. Um, now it's obviously a traffic nightmare because a lot of people like it. Right, yeah. Those we'll let you get old. off the expressway before the split, which is, you know, very attractive. <laughs> well, those of us old enough, you know, often would actually uh, come off a 128 to Route 3 as, a, uh, as opposed to going to Embergraph Highway Lake Jab. Now, I remember my dad would have to crisscross traffic, uh, you know, onto a 93 North Expressway. And then you have to swing right quick to get to Furnish Book Parkway so we can, you know, take Furnish Book back to uh, home in Walston. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of these traffic patterns you have today, if you're old enough, you remember they weren't there and the Rashudi Drive wasn't there and that Willard Street on-ramp wasn't there. And I was reminded by a friend, somewhere in there, there was a Howard Johnson, which I, oh, sw- yeah. I, rem- I swear I remember this Howard Johnson. I just can't remember exactly where it was. Yes, no, he's right. There was one there. I don't remember exactly where either, but it was right around there. I must have eaten there once as a child at some point. I must have. My father would have definitely brought us to, to it at one point. But for the love of Pete, I can't remember where exactly it was. I'm sure there's a picture we can find somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure someone will tell us uh, somewhere else. I'm sure you can have a guest that's uh, more uh, memory vivid about that Howard Johnson. But yeah, yeah I mean, there, there was these things in the expressway that people didn't realize were there uh, today. And today they didn't realize they were there then. That's right. So, you know, uh, but, you know, it's, it's again, I'm, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough. <laughs> so with this, I'm curious, with this, when they do finish the project, like five years down the road or longer, would the, would the state own it or would the city own it or is it a combination? City. city. Oh, the city. Okay. Yeah, the state's uh, jurisdiction ends at on-ramp or actually is the on-ramp. Once okay. the on-ramp actually connects to the Rusciutti Drive area or, you know, probably a hundred feet before it, you know, that becomes city roads. But, you know, obviously the city and the state will have to cooperate together regardless of the safety traffic issues, but regarding long-term maintenance, you know, it'll be a city component of that. As we know, I mean, plowing and things like that, the city and the state kind of works out among themselves 
Right. Yeah. You know, because the king's going to say the state, you know, does the on ramp and nothing else. I mean, right. You know, they'll, they'll always work it out. Somehow. Yeah. There's, right. There's the, the technical, then the practical. You know, if there's a plow right there and there's not one from the state available, obviously the city's going to take care of it just for safety reasons. Yeah. And Route 28, you know, is, is same thing. Road yep. 28. So you got a little gap with State Road. It isn't like the plow is going to stop, stop <laughs> leave that big empty space for the city, to, uh, that little space for the city, and then, you know, somehow make its way to 28 from there. Right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> All these little nuances <laughs> that yeah. folks don't realize. Yeah. <laughs> people again, the sausage making, like we kind of talked about a little bit earlier. I mean, people want the TV shows, but no one really thinks about how a TV show is made or movie is made, right? We do lawmaking here, uh, but no one cares about the processes. They only care about the the results, whether it be mm. positive or negative results, they care about results. And uh, the same thing in legal work. People don't care about the nuances of how to get you know their uh, filings done or their lawsuits addressed. They just care about getting to the end product. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. You know, shows like this, you know, gives us a chance to give you a little bit of insight behind the scenes. Um, you know, I do very find it very important that, you know, I try to leave, get some basic background how things are done, um, even on constituent services, uh, talking to folks. And um honestly, some people listen, yes, some people don't care. I mean, mm-hmm. it's life fights. I mean, it's no different from any job in the world. You know, no, nobody cares exactly how you got your bananas. You just want your bananas, right? Or, it's so true. We, we we want self-gratification. We want it instantly. <laughs> yep, and the, hang on. the. Uh, oh, your, uh, your motion light just... just yep, yeah, hold on, folks. I got to get the motion going. <laughs> now we'll switch to the, the radio version of Tacky Talk. <laughs> yeah, those of you on the podcast version uh, will not see me get up to wave my arms around to get the the energy efficiency motion sensor to, to turn the lights back on. So it must be on like a 30 minute timer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, this is a way of saving uh, money, right? Saving, uh, reducing carbon footprint, right? Is to you know, have ways to, um, uh, you know, not use lighting. You don't need to use it. Uh, we do have fluorescent lighting here and more uh, different energy efficient light bulbs all through the state house. Uh, and as you can just tell, I mean, the uh, fact that if I don't move, and the lighting goes off. So uh, the days of remember, you know, remember signs like, you know, last one out, turn off the light switches. Right. No need to worry about that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'm really starting to date myself here too. It's <laughs> last one out, flip the switch. Uh, the, um, as you're well aware, the 60th anniversary of uh, the March on Washington just took place not too long ago. Yeah, I saw that in the news and uh, those, you know, I have a dream of speech still resonates today. Um, the only last few years have been really tough. I don't have to rehash history for everybody. I think you all know. Uh, and it shows that, you know, the dream of 60 years ago is a dream that we continue to struggle to achieve. And uh, there are people out there who don't believe that there's a, there's a problem or don't want to address as a problem or don't want to see there's a problem. And those those who live uh, trying to struggle for for the dream, you know, uh, sees what the inequities really are. And but the question always the same is how do we get there? And two people say, you know, collectively that the dream needs to become real. Well, the struggle will continue. Yeah, you know, I had an interesting conversation um, recently with the city's new uh, uh, DEI liaison, uh, Damian Uttar, and he brought up an interesting point about um, accessibility to city services. 
Um, and the fact that, you know, they may all be accessible to folks, but some folks might not know how to use them. Um, so he's, you know, kind of coming at it from a point of, okay, we have all these services and people can access them, but do, do they know and do they know how? Yeah, they were going back to my much, much younger days when during the streets administration, I had some words in the Patriot Ledger that got me in trouble regarding accessing city services. Uh, <laughs> this is not a new struggle as a kind of uh, chuckle a bit because it's a struggle that's been going on in government services with uh, folks that are people of color, but also people who speak English as a first language. Right. As uh, I've said before, our old friend, Gene uh, Welch, who passed away that ran South Cove Community Health Center says language access is the last form of discrimination. Mm. He's right. Uh, and every immigrant, doesn't matter what part of the world you're from, doesn't speak English as first language or doesn't speak English well, you know, struggled uh, not with just government, but general population and, and trying to make a way of life. You know, we're, uh, we're trying to learn language skills on the fly. There was no government services, you know, when my parents came, uh, thankfully to Hong Kong immigrants, but still English was not their first language. Yep. Even it was taught in schools. And there was no government assistance, you know, back in the 60s uh, to help people acclimate quickly regarding language skills that we have today. Um, and, uh, you know, knowledge of government is a universal issue that all of us face. It's, you know, what's the difference between city and state? Why do we have county government? You know, what is the federal government's jurisdictions? And, you know, all these components that, you know, I can talk legal needs to you, but it's really about the division of services, right? I get uh, emails from folks that are having uh, immigration issues. This is the state level. I have really nothing to say about immigration issues. So, you know, we, we you know, provide a, a bridge to a federal delegation, a member's office to help them out from there. We do the whole, you know, handoff. We contact someone, you know, so you know who you can talk to if you call us and then we, we do the handoff, so to speak. So you're not just blindly calling an office. We, we like, I do like to try to make sure that a constituent has the ability to find another human in a congressional office to help them out. So, you know, and also, you know, why do we pay taxes for this, you know, taxes for that and, you know, where it goes, right? And you know, understanding the size of the federal, state, and municipal budgets, you know, why it's important to us to vote in municipal elections. And also, you know, what, why do you run for office, right? I mean, what, why, you, why are you running for office? What is your purpose? Why are you there? Is it strictly ideological? Is it more people-oriented? I tend to be more people-oriented. Uh, they, you know, try to be more helpful, an opportunity to be more helpful. Um, and, uh, you know, and how do you access government? How do you feel that you've been hurt? And how do you get good customer service where people will, uh, you know, for lack of uh, concept, you know, will, will welcome you with a smile, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? You know, basic customer service. And uh, I think everybody is called as experienced government service, including myself as an elected, uh, we don't receive service with a smile. Yeah, I think probably these past few years, more than any, uh, more and more people have had to have contact with their local and state government because of the pandemic and the services that they needed to access than they ever did in their lives, probably. As I like to say, most people call me is one time, one time and one time only. These people right. first experience, for example, trying to kill unemployment generally mm -hmm. happens during a good economic period for extended time, generally seven to 10 years, and then find themselves unemployed for the first time in an economic downturn. COVID was special, right? We almost hit 20% unemployment nationally. Uh, as I say, 20,000 applicants plus, you know, within a one week period at the state level, uh, my office phone and email was overwhelmed, um, just overwhelmed uh, during that first two or three weeks when, when literally, you know, 
a fifth of the workforce got laid off. Yeah. And you know what had 50 customer service people working unemployment. Yeah. Which, you know, in a normal time would be adequate, but it was completely inadequate for that time. Yeah. And then we found ourselves having to gear up well past 2000 employees in a very short period of time. And, uh, or, you know, my colleagues and myself, you know, ran into language access issues where, you know, for the first time we're overwhelmed and as opposed to be able to get some one-on-one assistance on language access, you know, now we're into, you know, thousands and thousands of people who do not have English as a first language. And, uh, you know, rapidly trying to find people with uh, the appropriate language skills to help them out and also produce uh, Zoom webinars, for lack of a better term, you know, to try to help people understand the process. And this was all done on the fly. There was no textbook. There was no rules. There was nothing. And again, this is sauce making, right? People don't uh, care about how we got there. They just care of the results they're able to get. And when you're dealing with people with a lot of fear, because the first time, that, you know, obviously a lot of things were going on in 2020, uh, you know, you know, fear becomes anger pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. Because you get scared, you know, and then when you have no control, then you get upset. Yeah. Yeah. And electeds tend to tech, electeds tend to get, you know, their head kicked in over it. Mm-hmm. And um, I've had my kicked in a lot over my lifetime. And I'm very understanding, as you guys probably may have figured out. Um, you do enough constituent service over enough decades. You're very understanding what's going on with people. And uh, I don't get upset about this stuff. I really don't. Uh, because if you understand what's going on, you know, there's no fear and there's no anger. Um, it's when you don't know what's going on is where fear takes hold and anger comes right after. Yeah. So uh, have policies put in place to, you know, deal with that if it ever does happen again? Well, the yes, kind of. I mean, I think... No matter what happens, can we fly at the seat of our pants? Lord forbid we have an actual disaster. Uh, but I mean, the mechanisms are better in place uh, as the conversation continues about knowing what to do next. But trying to gear up 2,000 employees in a fly is is just unreasonable, right? And certain things kind of worked well and some didn't. didn't. I mean, remember the huge contact tracing thing mm-hmm. that Baker tried and quite frankly fizzled after about a month? Well, you didn't try, you wouldn't know. Um right. You know, it's different from trying to track Ebola in Madagascar versus, you know, trying to track COVID in Massachusetts. It's like two different things. Um, it's It doesn't always translate well from one to the other. But, you know, hopefully, you know, the states, you know, working with the CDC again, like they did with avian flu, will create, again, new mechanisms and protocols in place for future, hopefully not near future, uh, pandemic situations. But also remember, folks, I mean, you know, post 9-11, this is a state that's terrorist ready. I mean, it's only been, what, um, about a dozen years now since the Boston bombing. I mean, uh, 2013, so 10 years. Yeah, 10 years. This is the 10th year of the Boston bombing. That's right. 10 years of Boston bombing. So that wasn't that long ago. And, you know, even then there was protocols in place for anti-terrorism unit. But they will still fly fly by the sea of your pants. You weren't really clear in the first hour who you're looking for. There was mistaken identity, which That's is right. Again, this is why the media has now slowed down the reporting of identities. Uh, because you're chasing the wrong person, the bad guy gets away. Duh. Right? Um, you know, that. so, I mean, even the media has changed exactly identities of, of release to get confirmation for law enforcement before they actually do something on their own. It's dangerous. You don't want to chase the wrong person. The real bad guy disappears, right? So, but even then, there was some flying a seat of pants. And we shut down Boston. We shut down like a lot of things around Boston. I mean, yeah, there was a terrorist protocol. But, you know, you, your first hour, no one knew what they were looking for. And uh, 
you know, triage was set up right away. Um, so you can prepare for the best, but at some point you have to wing a little bit of it. Yeah. Let's hope we don't have to do it again real soon. That's for sure. <laughs> I personally would like to not have a second experience. Correct. Yeah. Uh, we should talk a little bit about the economy as we always do. It's, it's weird still. <laughs> weird still, right? I mean, uh, unemployment openings uh, has dropped. Um, so for the first time in almost like a year and a half, uh, you know, there are uh, slowdown in job availabilities, but unemployment still remains remarkably low. I think unemployment numbers come out this Friday. They so do, yeah. It'll give an idea of, you know, what it may look like. Um, you know, the GDP numbers look like it's still going to be very strong going into uh, the fall. But you know, consumer spending will trickle. I mean, uh, people had well past a trillion dollars in savings account monies. Uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, it's come down to under two hundred million dollars in total savings, uh, which means that people are either intentionally or forced to uh, spend down their uh, savings accounts. Mm. Even though wages and inflation are now sinking up better, you know, at some point wages are going to stop growing. Um, and I talked about this before, where you want uh, inflation to get below wages to start the equalization process. And it looks like we're heading that direction, but we don't know. Fuel prices have gone up. Those of you may have seen maybe almost 30 cents plus in the last 30 or so days, gas prices have gone up. Um, and, uh, you know, there's still this winter unknowns. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. It's going to be a very cold winter, a very warm winter on a global level, not just locally, because fuel and energy prices is a global issue. When one part of the world has unusual weather events, it actually will affect the economy in another part of the world. So last time uh, we talked, the Fed had yet to meet, but they did meet in Wyoming and didn't really indicate one way or the other what they were going to do with interest rates. Yeah, Jerome Powell uh, picked his words very carefully. Uh, obviously, they write this stuff beforehand. They're very aware that anything he says may have impacts on markets and interest rates and loans and people buying homes and you know, retailers getting ready for whatever we're going to do next. I mean, it's a real ripple effect uh, on what he says. And he continues to maintain a very uh, vague but straightforward line where uh, we're data dependent, nothing's off the table, but it doesn't mean we're going to do anything, but just be aware. It's kind of like interviewing Bill Belichick. <laughs> he says a lot, but he doesn't say anything. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. Um, <laughs> the problem uh, that the feds have and all of us have, uh, doesn't matter what level government work or researchers, it doesn't matter who you are, everything's going to be a lagging indicator. Uh, you only know uh, as much as the data has been collected over the last 30 days. It takes a couple of weeks for the information to be synthesized to the digestible form from all these data sets and you can make a determination. Now, what, what's happened today from 30 days ago or three months ago or one year ago is very different. Mm. And uh, But I can't tell you what's going on right now right? We could tell you what happened 30 years ago or three months ago, one year ago, because those data sets have been set. And uh, as I like to remind folks, you know, past results does not uh, indicate future return. This is the rule of life we should all pay attention to. Uh, you know, as I like to say, the, those little thing, uh, the little number of things you see on the roulette tables is not a prediction of the future roulette wheel. 
No, read the fine print for sure. Yeah. Read the fine print. Same thing goes with everything else in life. Past indication is not a guarantee of future return. It becomes a guidepost of future return, but necessarily a guarantee of what outcomes will be. So we talk about institutional knowledge. I have a lot of that. Um, I can get guesstimate within a zone of possibilities, but until the actual thing happens, um, you don't know if you're right or wrong. All you're doing mm -hmm. is providing insight the best you can on a possible outcome. Can we talk a little bit about uh, presidential politics? Uh, since last we talked also, there is now uh, a indictment in the former Republican president. Yeah, history is being made in the most unfortunate negative ways. Uh, this would be interesting how historians write this 20 years from now. Uh, I'm, it's interesting. Republican primary is, is becomes a real fascinating a study in politics. Those of us who are politics nerds, um, I find is like really, really interesting. Um, it was interesting four years ago. It was interesting eight years ago and, and 16 years ago. But this one is by far the most fascinating primary. Mm -hmm. And the primaries are, are tricky um, because uh, you, appeal, you have it a real campaign question, right? So Massachusetts, for example, is an open primary state. You can be unenrolled, non-party affiliated, take a Democrat or Republican ballot. You only can take one and vote in that primary. You can switch parties, for example, to or come become unenrolled for Democrat or Republican and take another ballot. You can switch back to party affiliation later on. Other states are closed primaries, meaning that you can only vote in a primary if your party affiliation is there, meaning that you can't be unenrolled or non-party affiliated and then proceed to take a Democrat or Republican. You must register in one of those parties to participate. Why is that important? Well, the pool of voters change. Right. Who you're trying to appeal to. So, you know, a little campaign insight of Democratic Republican politics. You know, you start data looking at the data regarding people's voting patterns. Now, we don't know who you vote for, but we do your voter, we do know your registration, and we can track your registration change around over the course of as long as we have data on it. And, you know, try to figure out whether or not you're a voter in a presidential primary and what are the odds. Again, can't predict what are the odds that you may take a Democratic Republican ballot. And whether or not the campaign tries to appeal for your vote based on that math. Right. Um, and they've gotten very good at it. Yeah. And of course, Democrats, Republicans don't always vote in the primary either for whatever right. reason. Yep. So, you know, that's the it is out there. And again, money's not forever, even in, in elected politics. And you got to spend your resources wisely. Um, so you have an open primary like in Massachusetts, those data sets regarding unruh voters or voters that keep swapping parties back and forth regularly you know, become an interesting data set. If you're in a state where it's a closed primary, you don't care about unenrolled voters. And you may not even care about people swapping parties regularly. You may want to just concentrate on uh, very specific demographic voters. And then you do the surveys and you do all those focus groups and you do all this stuff to find out what the demographic represents. Now, the trouble that's occurred is that primary participation way down. And as a result, the pool of voters keeps shrinking, which means your messaging keeps shrinking to that smaller pool of voters, which is why people are always like, well, how come they don't speak to a wider audience? Because you're not voting as part of that wider audience. Right. You know, the message will be targeted towards that smaller pool of voters. And you know, in the last you know four years, uh, the voter registration has gone down regarding party affiliations, especially the Republican Party. And as a result, those unenrolled voters in closed primary states no longer have an impact regarding how they message in those states. Mm -hmm. 
So if you're in a closed primary state and you have a very smaller pool of Republican voters because those people change registration to be unrolled or to go Democrat or wherever to go, you know, that changes how a Republican primary messages. So what you see in the messaging today was probably not the same messaging 10 years ago, which was not the same messaging even 20 years ago. And this is kind of the challenge of primary politics. And then there's the other question uh, we kind of briefly touched upon before we came on the show here, you know, is qualifications to run for president. Right. And, uh, every state has a different qualification because the states determine the qualifications to running for office in said state. So the requirements in Massachusetts is not the same as in Florida or Texas or California or Washington State, or Iowa, North Dakota, all different. So running a national campaign is pretty complicated because you need uh, people in every state, in the case of a primary, to include those territories like Guam matters, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps if you're in a tight situation because they get to send delegates uh, to the convention. So, you know, those, those you know, you got to know the rules of the primary process, where we caucus general elections. You have to understand the rules of a final election. You have to understand how many signatures you need to get. You know, you also have to understand whether or not you have a criminal background on whether or not you can qualify for office. Generally a conviction, not a not an indictment or a right. arrest. You have to have a conviction. Right. And whether or not that impacts your ability to run in those states. Massachusetts, uh, you can't you lose your right to vote if you're a convicted felon. However, you know, it doesn't necessarily prohibit your ability to run for office. Oh, interesting. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, I remember one time uh, somebody ran for prison against Steve Lynch when he was a state senator. Is that right? So oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a year when um, Steve Lynch ran in the nine eleven year primary, which is actually oh. a great conversation to have with a congressman about how he pulled off that four way Democrat plan, which is quite incredible. Okay, but, but um, before that, uh, when he ran in the special election rate for Billy Bowser's seat. He probably would call it better than I am. I might be getting this wrong, but when 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 Senate President Bowdrill left, becoming U.S. president, triggered a special election. That's how Steve Lynch came to the Senate, state Senate. And I remember correctly, I think that special election actually had somebody running from prison huh. uh, against him in that uh, in that uh, election as a Republican. But again, you have to check with uh, the congressman and go back in the way back machine to see if he's willing to tell a story from ancient times. No, I'm sure he will. I'm sure he remembers clearly. <laughs> yeah, I think he'll remember more clearly than I do. But um, yeah, it, again, it's it's every state is different. Every state is quirky. And if there is a conviction of the president um, or the former president, more accurately, uh, during the election process, does that bump them off balance? Hmm. Stay tuned for that. Sir. Um, anything going on in the district, uh, Tacky, we should talk about? No, it's been really quiet. I mean, obviously, August moon has come and gone, and you know, Labor Day is rolling around. But a lot of Labor Day events tend to be at the Park Plaza Hotel as they have their Labor Day rally. And I understand, you know, there's uh, some you know local things in Marymount neighborhood, and um, you know, there's an art festival going on. Mm-hmm. You know, and there, but it's I expect it to be very quiet going into this weekend. You know, nine eleven uh, is coming around. Uh, the fire station headquarters journey would do a ceremony is remembering folks that have passed uh, from that tragic event. Um, and then uh, moving into September, you know, there'll be more and more um, fundraising events going off. I did get my invitation from the Dove um, annual event, Domestic uh, domestic Violence Ended. Mm-hmm. Um, so that fundraiser is coming up and I'm sure Interface Social Services and Community Action Program is probably gonna do a fundraising drive uh, this fall. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're, it's going to pick up again. And, 
uh, I think what's going to happen again, like we saw uh, last year, is that I think some of the big events will occur uh, in the month of October. It'll be very busy for many of us. And then it'll probably be quiet again to um, the spring, uh, as I think people will not try to create large gatherings um, in the near term, again, because there will be a COVID spike. The numbers already showing it's coming. Yeah, it's, we're expecting guidance soon on the, the most recent um, vaccination. So we'll see what, what CDC says about that. Yeah, the BXX is the latest variant of vaccines to be ready to go. I will be getting vaccinated. My mom, as you guys already aware, has uh, lung cancer and is um, respiratory challenged. So uh, the vaccination is very important to, to her as well as myself. So we're definitely going to get vaccinated when that comes up. Uh, but hit the age, I can get the shingles virus vaccine, I think. Um, and um, RSVB virus uh, vaccination is coming up, opportunity may be coming up very quickly for folks, uh, particularly the senior population, RSVB, RS, uh, uh, RSP, I keep, uh, is it because I'm not enunciating correctly? Yeah, it's RSV. RSV is, is, is very deadly for senior population. That, yeah. that vaccine hopefully be ready this fall as well. Yep. The flu. Yeah, it so yeah, that. <laughs> So, uh, yes, I am going to get vaccinated. It's in my best interest, but also the interest of keeping my mom safe. Uh, I know you're pressed for time today, so I'll ask you to get over your information so folks can get a hold of you. Sure. Uh, Tacky.chan, T-A-C-K-Y dot C-H-A-N at mahouse.gov. Email my email box is gratefully not crazy anymore. So I will actually find your email easily. Uh, obviously, you can call the office. We encourage people to call the office at 617-722-2370, 617-722-2370. And uh, State Representative Tacky Chan Facebook. Uh, we have Twitter at Tacky Chan. Uh, we have Tacky Chan at ORG, which is not the state website, but because of strange ethical law issues, I have to maintain a separate website, uh, which is actually a work website, not a campaign website. Uh, to provide some useful resources. And of course, the state website is malegislature.gov. Uh, you can look at past public hearings and upcoming schedules of the legislature. Uh, of course, QATV. Um, hopefully, Joe will talk about me in the podcast in the morning as part of the news in a positive manner. And uh, yeah, and then, you know, you can find me in a number of ways. <laughs> okay, sure. And uh, oh, so yeah, room 42. Come by and visit. We're open. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Techie. Happy, uh, safe uh, Labor Day weekend. You too. Everyone enjoy uh, Labor Weekend. I'll see you in the fall.